All right. Welcome to The Boost, episode two. And I am so happy to be here with Bob Hutchins of Human Voice Media. Bob, how are you? I'm doing good, Steve. Thank you. Good. Awesome. That makes it sound like we haven't really just been talking like 15, 20 <laughs> minutes before this, but it's a nice intro. Yeah, for sure. No, I'm doing really well. I've been fighting a little bit of a cold the past week, but other than that, I, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm getting over it. Ah, okay. You don't sound sick, so that's good. Hopefully you're back to 100%. So Bob and I are friends and been friends for a while. You spoke at the 2022 Mental Health Marketing Conference on the media is the message, and you've been doing a lot of things. Um, there's a lot here we want to get into for sure. So sure. I just want to launch in like we're going to do every time with the virtual hug and the shameless plug, and then we'll go from there. So the virtual hug to start with is Tell us someone or something you're grateful for today. Gosh, I knew that was coming, the virtual hug. So I had a lot to choose from. But lately, quite honestly, Steve, I have been so aware and grateful of, this, of the many people that are in my life, in my community that surround me, that are amazingly creative and smart business people. And as you know, and we'll probably touch on, I, I really value creativity in the business workplace. And we'll talk about that a little more, but I'm so fortunate to be surrounded by people who demonstrate that Steve, you're one of those for sure. But I think of, you know, I could just go through the list and name them. And I think part of it is where we live. We both live in, in the Nashville area, right? I think there's there's certainly something unique about places like Nashville and Austin and places that have a creative culture, whether it's music or the arts, but it's still small enough to benefit from that in other ways. And I always say that Nashville's like a, it's a big, small town. You've been here for a few years and you begin to know somebody knows somebody who knows somebody, right? Mm -hmm. And as a result, I'm just every day I'm amazed at, at how logical and successful and entrepreneurial people are, but how they think outside of the box and how they're doing amazing, cool things. And I get to benefit from that. And that, that is catch it's, it's catchy, it's viral, it's collaborative. And I just, I'm so grateful for that because I can pick up the phone or shoot an email almost any day of the, of the night, day or night and go, Hey, what do you think about this idea? Have you ever thought about it this way? And people are always doing the same with me. So that's very life-giving for me. And I know it is for the community of, of professionals I have around me. So I'm very, very grateful for that. Mm, yeah. So I think it's even maybe in your book, you mentioned that one way to get a gauge for somebody is the people who are around them. I forget if that's your book or not, but this is, this is, let's see, this is your book right here, Our our Digital Soul. We'll talk more yeah. about that. But I would agree. Nashville, for one, it has, I think, phenomenal diversity if you tap into it and industrial diversity, meaning, uh, you know, it's got the university bedrock, one of the biggest college towns in the country after New York. Um, it's got the music scene, which is very creative. It has healthcare, which is, of course, uh, you know, a big business and uh, there's a lot of creativity and innovation going into it. And then there's uh, tech and creative agencies, you know, you're a creative strategist 
And uh, there are lots of those in Nashville, surprising number. And so you benefit from the people around you. And while you were talking, I was trying to remember how we exactly met, but that's just, that's just the thing. Like you've introduced me to so many people and it's, uh, it's humbling to even be on your list. I don't know if I, if I'm where I am on that list, I think way down only because there's so many amazing people to meet and talk to in Nashville. So I love that that is a, a halo effect for you and sort of a, a rising boats effect for you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And yeah, you are definitely on that list because Steve, you know, not to toot your horn, but I'm going to, I mean, here's somebody who's um, in their own life uh, recognizes their own need uh, and their benefit and their passion for mental health and then leans into that. And it's like, well, I'm not a mental health provider, but I know I can uh, help to elevate those people who are. And out of that, you're you're really doing full time mental health support for mental health providers. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, most people uh, at the stage in the game in your career and in your success would not shift and go and like, well, I'm going to go start a conference about how to support mental health providers. Uh, and you're doing it very effectively. And so I think you're living that ethos that I value so much because it's an inspiration. I'm the uh, grandma Moses of uh, mental health marketing. That's what everybody calls me. Late start. Oh, get, get, get I, I've met you by a few years on lots of different changes. So, yeah, no, one of the, uh, one of the speakers I'm excited about for the conference is Catherine Reynolds from mental health America, the national uh, association. And she's going to be talking about the, the role and the importance of the, the advocate, you know, the lived experience, but also the advocate, because we do sort of, sometimes bow to the clinician and provider. And, and there's a lot of good reason for that. Um, and also it is amazing what has happened in my life by simply starting at the core, this little acorn, and then these concentric circle ripples as I do the work in my own life and then lean into the work. And we're going to talk about flow, how to get into flow. Maybe that's, that's something that's in your book. So um, yeah, let's let's jump into it. So what is your uh, shameless plug? Tell us kind of what you're working on and what you're excited about. Well, in the beginning of this year in January, so gosh, it's already April, um, I started Human Voice Media. I've had a podcast for a few years called The Human Voice, and um, I l I've always loved what that infers, uh, the getting to the commonality of us all and the human element. My background and my career has been, as you mentioned, marketing strategy, digital marketing, um, executive growth hacker uh, is what I do for a lot of people. But I went back a couple of years ago and got my master's degree in behavioral and organizational psychology because I really do believe uh, as do you, that that human element, that that uh, engagement point of technology, business, and psychology is where so many of us live. Um, and so Human Voice Media is an umbrella organization for almost like a production house that everything I do kind of sits under. And right now it's just me. It's the where I write my books. I publish my articles, I speak, um, 
I, I offer my consulting business to clients all under human voice media, but my vision for it is to be very collaborative to one day in the very near future. And I'm already working on a few different projects where I can bring other people in either collaborate around this whole subject, whether it be uh, online uh, teaching a course, whether it be a software app, whether it be um, video, some sort of production that this intersection of business technology, human flourishing psychology, um, and, and people who are telling good stories there. So maybe human voice me, uh, the human voice podcast, uh, will have a, a podcast network in the near future. I'm working on some ideas there with other voices. Uh, maybe I'll collaborate with other people on, on teaching, uh, and or writing, uh, in the future. So human voice media is an umbrella for all those things. Cool. Awesome. Okay. And you had me on your podcast. That was yeah. maybe the first podcast Great. I'd ever been on, maybe the second uh, tops. And, uh, and we had a lot of fun. I learned a lot from that. And that's happened more and more. Um, yeah, and, you're no pro at it now. Well, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. Yeah. We launched the first one last week. And it was a really good kind of minimally viable product. Um, that turned great because of the guest, you know, Erica Kessie, who, you know, and yep. if I start another podcast, it'll be called, uh, books I've read. So you don't have to, um, but yours would be one that I would love to not have on there because this is a book that everybody should read. And it's next to one of my, one of my true lifetime favorites, Stephen Pressfield's the war of art. And I paired those up, um, and they may fall down off the shelf. So I hope that doesn't happen. Um, I pay, I put Stephen Pressfield up there because he reviewed and recommended your book. It's like in the first, and I would have put it too, the first page, Stephen Pressfield, I open it up to start reading and my jaw dropped. How did you, how did that come about? Well, he's, that book is definitely been influential in my life, like so many other millions of people around the world. And I encourage everyone to read it. It's not that hard. It's not that big, um, but it is life changing. Um, so I reached out to him. Uh, one of the beautiful things of <laughs> having a podcast and one of the reasons I started a podcast is so that I could meet all the people I wanted to meet and I knew that I could never meet them. Yeah. Um, but something about having a podcast and especially when they release new books like Stephen does almost every year, uh, you have a much greater chance of getting them on there if you do a good pitch about how, you know, what a fan you are and you're going to promote your podcast, uh, et cetera, et cetera, then they see it as a good opportunity to promote their book. So I was fortunate enough for him to say yes on that a, a while ago, a couple of years ago, uh, I guess it's been now on one of his books he released and we just struck up a friendship and he's just a real likable, nice older gentleman um, who what you see is what you get and he's pretty authentic. And, um, so when I was, we were finishing this book up, I reached out to him and shot him an email and I said, Hey, remember me? Um, would you be willing to give me endorsement on the book? And he said, absolutely would love to. So hmm. it's just a great guy. That's kind of, kind of person he is. That's cool. That's amazing. That I would be a fanboy if I ran into Stephen Pressfield, <laughs> maybe someday I will. Um, well, he spends a lot of time in Nashville, so. Okay. Just keep your eyes open. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I'm, we've got this list. I'm going to jump into. Um, sure. Actually, I'm going to jump down because 
there's a little segment of uh, from the war of art <clears throat> that I'd like to read. And then I want to work into your book. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Pressfield talks about this moment when a patient learns they have terminal cancer, um, perhaps. And he writes, the ego, Jung tells us, Carl Jung, is that part of the psyche, is that part of the psyche that we think of as I, our conscious intelligence, our everyday brain that thinks, plans, and runs the show of our day-to-day -day life. The self, as Jung defined it, is a greater entity, which includes the ego. So the ego is like a little dot, and then there's this bigger this bigger area of the self, which also incorporates the personal and collective unconscious. Dreams and intuitions come from the self. The archetypes of the unconscious dwell there. It is, Jung believed, the sphere of the soul. So then to wrap up, he says, so when the patient learns they have cancer, the person's worldview moves from the ego to the self. And it reminded me of what you said about uh, you know, Nashville and your community, um, including your city, being sort of a a hub, a place for creativity and, you know, sort of those, the dreams, the unconscious, the creative path, in addition to sure, sort of the planning and the business acumen and the, the marketing ROI and analytics and all of that. So, um, you know, kind of just, what are your thoughts on that? How has that book influenced you in terms of your writing of the book that you did? Well, one of the things that Pressfield talks about in the war of art is, um, any, everybody is creative. And I believe that too. And everybody has something to offer the world that's inside of them. And it doesn't have to be an amazing painting or an amazing song. Um, it can be as simple as um, a speech that you've been wanting to give, or you've been wanting to play the guitar, or you wanting to write that book that you've always been inside of you. So whatever it may be, but he talks about the thing that keeps us from doing that is resistance. Um, he, he refers to that muse piece, which is that unseen creative part that almost has a life of its own. That's gnawing on you. They're going, Hey, I want to get out. I want to, mm -hmm. I want to write this book. I want to do this thing. Um, and then resistance is that thing that says, ah, I'm not a good writer or I got too much on my plate, or maybe tomorrow, or no one's interested. Um, and so the war of art is really, how do you how do you let that muse out and how do you get over that resistance? So that's a little plug for the book. Tying it back into what you said, I think, you know, far be it from me to disagree with Carl Jung, um, and I won't because I do agree with him. I look at it like this. Um, I think when we get to the point, Steve, in our lives where we can have some level, uh, what psychologists call metacognition, and that means that we're able to observe our thoughts and not become so consumed with our thoughts and our life and our desires, but to take a step back and go, I'm triggered here, or Oh, that's an interesting thought. Where did that come from? Or I'm, I'm anxious right now. I wonder what this is and, and, and observe it yeah. because I think what, what Stephen Pressfield and Jung, what they're all saying is you are not your experience. Um, you know, if I, if, if I experience all the things of being a good businessman and make lots of money, um, my ego goes, well, that's who I am. And if you were to ask me 
the ego would say, well, I'm Bob Hutchins. I've done this, this, and this, and this, or I'm Steve Turney. And here's, here's a list of where I work, who I am, who I'm married to, who my kids are. And while those things are important, it's still not you. That's not who you are. You are the person, you are the soul, you are the entity that observes all these things happen at any given time. Um, because if whatever happens in my world, whatever I think of, I'm, I'm literally have the ability to observe and assess uh, and make changes on those. That's what the work is uh, of those things. And so when you talk about the person who has cancer, I think <laughs> that's where you're shaken awake and going, oh, mm -hmm. going to that job and making that money and climbing that ladder and having that beautiful wife or whatever it may be that's not who I am. Those are things that I engage in, but the real me is that deeper part that observes and makes assessments uh, of those things. And so that, that little subtle twist of being able to, I call it metacognition of observing your thoughts and your experiences and being able to step back from it, even if it's for a split second, hopefully it's longer than that. Um, that's where I think real mental health, real growth, real maturity, real leading, uh, leaning into your true self. You can really find, um, again, lots of things and including what Pressfield calls the muse, a uh, mm -hmm. high really level beautiful. of productivity and creativity, yeah. all those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love his, his culmination of his book with the muse. And um, I, I was reading a book on fear. I forget the title right now but the guy is a neurosurgeon and you know you know we have this sort of rational neocortex frontal cortex of our brain and then we have sort of the lizard brain whatever you want to call it down deep and he describes it as his definition of metacognition would be if you can get to a place where you are observing albert einstein riding a wild stallion that's that's getting there and and when I meditate, there's sometimes a mantra that I also use when I used to do a lot of long distance running. And the idea was, um, it's a couplet, like thoughts are like clouds in the sky, how they shimmer as they fly. And just mm -hmm. sort of a, a detachment from, you know, maybe the negativity on a hard run or a rainy run or, um, you know, something just to release on that. So, um, you know, that's kind of where my head goes with you, but it also goes to right into flow. So let's talk about flow. It's something you talk about in the book. Um, flow is being completely involved in an activity for its own sake. The ego falls away and time flies. So talk a little bit about that progression into maybe muse inspired flow work. And then maybe for you specifically, when are you in flow? Are there things you do? Are there patterns or habits that you do to, you know, on a day to day, maybe try to get into the, into the flow? Yeah, I have a little bit of a practice that I try to do daily. I don't always do it, but I try to do daily. And that's, I'll put my phone on do not disturb. I will get my journal. I'll get a pen and pencil. And um, I use a little tool called mind journal. Um, I know there's lots of different ones. Just get a get an empty, empty page of paper and a pen, whatever works for you. And I try to start with um, 
you know, getting in touch, having metacognition, uh, the version I use mind journal is what it's called. It actually has a list of emotions and feelings on the very top of each day. And it says, how are you feeling? And there's about three columns. So there's a few dozen of them. And for me, um, that's really helpful because I don't always think I'm so in my head. I'm not doing practicing metacognition that I have to look at emotions and feelings and going, Oh, how am I feeling today? And the amazing thing for me, Steve, um, I can be like most of us, I can be feeling multiple things at one time. And as I go back and look, you know, weeks or months later, go, Oh, I'm just curious. What was I feeling that morning? And it's amazing how I can check off anxious and calm at the same time because I'm, I'm like that. Like I can literally be going in and out of things every few seconds and go, well, there's a part of me that's actually really at peace and calm, but there's a part of me that's really nervous about this upcoming call. Um, and being able to identify those things uh, at peace, upset, unsure, uh, you know, proud, whatever it may be. Um, and then the next thing is, what are my goals for the day? The three things I want to accomplish, um, what I'm grateful for. Um, and then I just have, and this is where it's getting into flow. I try to spend a good half an hour to 45 minutes at least just journaling. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's where flow comes from. It comes from uninterrupted, just letting my mind put thoughts down. And for me, it could be as it could be a thought about an article I want to write about. And it, be, and it just amazing how things start to come out and the bullet points and the outline of that article. It might be, um, you know, some sort of poem um, that just begins to flow. That's like, here's what I'm feeling and I'm thinking about, and I'll just write a sentence and I'm like, oh, that's kind of neat. Let's write another one that goes with it. Um, it might be uh, processing a real issue I'm dealing with um, that I'm trying to unpack. And so I'll, I'll journal on that. But I think the key is allowing your, your find a place for me, it's a physical tactile pen and paper. Um, doesn't have to be, I, I know it can be done on, on a, on a computer or, or however, mm -hmm. but just getting quiet and alone, getting away from the distractions and then having some sort of rhythm that you're in. And then all of a sudden you, you look and it's like, oh, it's an hour later. And I've really done some contemplative time to do that metacognition, to set my intention for the day. And then actually to have some sort of creative outlet to get that muse out of me that I can go back and go, oh, now I have an outline to write that article that I want to, or that blog post or the beginnings of that book, or um, maybe just my own personal writings that I need to get out. So that for me is how I get into flow. And flow is that state where things are just coming second nature that you're not forcing it. You're not, um, you're not stuck. It's just flowing. And one of the hardest things I think for people to do is allow themselves to, to just flow. If you don't know what to write, just start writing. Yeah. Like literally just write whatever comes to mind. And it might sound like gobbledygook, <laughs> but all of a sudden things start coming out and you're like, oh, there is a message here and it's almost subconscious. 
And so that's what flow is. Other people describe it as like focusing in and getting work done and not being aware of time because you're not distracted yeah. and that creative element begins to, to really come out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Julia Cameron's the artist's way. Have you read that book? I think yep. it's uh, I think that's where I maybe drew my inspiration, similar practice to just get up in the morning early. And it was just a brain dump. It was just, you know, I needed to write three pages and sometimes it was just, I don't know what to write. I don't know what to write. And then you do that for a while, then something else starts to come out. And it's, you, you mentioned like getting the muse out. It is, it's like an emptying is what it is. And it's anything that flows needs space. So, you know, for us to sort of be like water while we have all the water dammed up in our heads, you know, while we slept for eight hours and and then we get up and we need to sort of get that out of our, get ourselves out of our heads. That's what, that's what it did for me. And then, yeah, it instantly started to one day turn into a, an eight line poem over and over again. I wrote for about a year, just an eight line poem. And then it turned into a one page poem, which was like 32 lines. And, um, and then it turned into other things, business ideas and, and things that were, you know, real things I could activate um, in different ways. So yeah, it's fascinating uh, how to how to get there. Um, let's see. I wanted to uh, transition to maybe the biggest. That was a very un, that was a very unflowing transition, but we're going to do it because I want to get to something before we end up talk before we end this conversation, and it is uh, mental health. So this is all about uh, you know promoting mental health, and and I, I was sitting with actually a an editor in chief of a, a, like a kind of respected, very respected publication. And he asked me, what, what is mental health? How do you define that? And he's just a lifelong learner and, and very curious. So it was a great question, but it did make me think it is a big fuzzy term and it can mean a lot of different things. And in your book, our digital soul, Jenny Black and you offer up a definition and it's this. Mental health is the ability to self-regulate, self-organize, and draw upon relationships to regain self-integrity. And uh, I think it's adjacent to this passage. You talk about video gamers. There's a lot of different ways that you take this, but talk a little bit about your definition of mental health, why you defined it that way. And then let's talk a little bit about self-integrity and, and self-regulation as a part of that. Yeah. Well, if you read the book, um, there are, we define it a few different ways and we quote several different people, but the one that you just shared is one of my favorite because mental health has been so, um, vilified now all of a sudden it's becoming back popular again. And it, it almost starts to, to lose its meaning when it becomes ubiquitous like this. So what I like about the ability to self-regulate, uh, self-monitor um, is, you know, we all find ourselves in certain situations, Steve, and by no means am I implying that um, certain proclivities and struggles um, is a lack of mental health. Uh, we all have our quirks, our obsessions, our ways that we're wired, and um, whether it's nature and nurture, we could probably discuss for days, mm -hmm. but the, 
where it becomes unhealthy is that when I no longer have control or I can't um, get on top of and uh, my, for instance, my anxiety or my obsessiveness or my fears or my struggles of memories that I can't king to let go of when it's impeding um, in my regular function of life and work and family. Um, and I'm not functioning, not only functioning, but prospering uh, and thriving in those environments when it's impeding those and I can't self-regulate that's where there's a potentially a mental health problem. And to me, that is a real, not only is it a logical under way to understand it, but also it's one that we can all relate to because we've all been there. Um, we've all been in situations for whatever reason where, you know, this is a little bit out of my control and I can't, I can't stop it. I have to leave the room or I have to take a day off. Mm-hmm. Um, because I can no longer regulate it myself um, and function as I should. So that's where that definition came from. Um, And that's where I think um, is one healthy definition, in my opinion, of of what mental health is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, certainly there's the stoicism idea of making sure you know what you can control and you can't control. I've, I've been circling a related word that to me sums all of that up and it's agency, the word agency. And um, it's a familiar word to me because I've worked in a few creative agencies, but the the word agency meaning that, you know, I know why the caged bird sings, for example, that's, a, that's an uh, observation of agency where regardless of how hard things can be or have been, and we all go through hard times, you know, um, Nashville's going through a hard time right now, quite honestly. And and how we respond to what we can and can't control and not to get into all, all of that, but just to say it is critical. And you talk about this in your book, how we are responding to media these days, because it's always on. And I see you as something of a, something of a sort of Yoda gatekeeper on this path that sort of is touching both sides of this because you don't throw out the tech and the AI and you're, you're tracking AI. I would love to talk about that if we have time. And then at the same time, you have this um, awareness that we need to be aware we need to be watching that, you know, we need metacognition of the tech perhaps. And so I think you are sort of your, you and your book are a bellwether to that. So, I mean, that's, that's where my head goes. Do you feel, do you feel like you're sort of walking a line there or, the same way you said, I'm, I can be anxious and I can be excited. Do you feel that about <laughs> tech and media? Yeah. Yeah. I call it the razor's edge, quite honestly, or you could say the edge of the coin, right? Mm-hmm. I use this illustration all the time, but there's three sides to a coin, but we only talk about the two sides, right? There's the, there's heads, tails, and there's the edge. And I think my life is characterized by trying to find the edge of things because mm-hmm that's where the magic is. That's where the truth usually lies. Um, because let's be honest, none of us are one thing or another. Um, we are constantly a, a conglomerate of many different things, emotions, feelings, um, opinions, um, beliefs. And the beautiful thing is we're always growing and changing too. 
So with that, how do you, how do you live that tr the truest human version of yourself of what I just described inside of a context made of ones and zeros, right? The tech world. Um, and that's what I'm always trying, as you said, trying to, um, trying to live, trying to thrive, trying to pull other people toward, don't believe the lie that, uh, that tech is just a tool, a neutral tool that we can use for good or bad. Mm -hmm. To me, it's very reductionist. Um, we are so, the tools sh shape us and we shape our tools. It uh, doesn't matter what it is. And, you know, as you know, one of my heroes was, is Marshall McLuhan. Um, and that's what he spent his whole life talking about is the unseen effects and effects of any media platform, of any technology, touches us and changes us and transforms us for the good or maybe for the not so good. But it takes a metacognition to see that. It takes deep thought uh, and flow to begin to uncover those things. But again, that's where the magic happens. That's where we use these things for amazing um, transformational uses. And it's where we become aware that they have changed us mm -hmm. in transformative ways, maybe not always for the positive. So you, mm -hmm. so you do feel hopefully and read that thread throughout my book. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I like a similar, it's a little bit reductionist, but you build your house and then your house builds you. And it's the same maybe with tech. And there's also the idea that the, the prophet is never welcome in their own home. So, you know, it's interesting. You were talking ahead of time, how McLuhan is sort of suddenly maybe coming into the zeitgeist in a more welcomed way, because, you know, his maybe heyday of, of philosophy and thought was when we were crafting and building sort of new media, you know, television and radio ads and, um, you know, and we have the internet coming online and now we have all of those things in place. And now it's sort of like people are uh, becoming hyper aware of what we've built and, and where it goes next. And, oh, maybe we should pump the brakes. And, uh, and you've, you've studied a lot of that. And then you also, you also know um, his grandson, Andrew. McLean. Yeah. How did you? Yeah, Andrew is. We met online on LinkedIn. Andrew McLuhan is uh, Marshall's grandson, and he's the keeper of the McLuhan Library. Um, Andrew's father uh, is not as well known, but Andrew's father also traveled with his father, who was Marshall McLuhan, um, and was his assistant, co-wrote the last few books with him. And even after Marshall McLuhan died in 1980, um, his son went on. Uh, Andrew's father to write some books and speak and died just a few years ago, I believe in 2017 or 18. So, um, so Andrew is a great, great guy lives up in Canada where Marshall and his father originally from Toronto area, um, but is the keeper of the library and all the notes of, of Marshall McLuhan and his father. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could help me get Andrew on the boost. Oh, easy. <laughs> I can't Easy. afford him, but at least we could talk about it. Oh, I bet he would do it for free. <laughs> we did talk a little bit. I, I, I had through you, I got a, a semi introduction that I ran with, got to meet Andrew yeah. on LinkedIn too, which is a 
such a great platform. Yeah, he's fascinating. And he follows in the footsteps of his grandfather, I'm sure his father, where um, always questioning, always a skeptical eye toward the technology, but not in a Luddite, uh, you know, kind of posture of going, oh, technology bad. More of the, maybe there's something else under the covers that's really going on here that we need to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I'm always, you know, there, there's actually a, um, a term called media ecology, and it's actually a study that Marshall McLuhan helped to found, but others, you know, Neil Postman and others behind him have, mm-hmm. have done, and there's actually majors in certain colleges, but media ecology talks about the effects of media and technology on the culture at large. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. We're um, getting close to time. So um, I love books. I know you love books. You got a blurry bookshelf behind you. What's something you're reading or want to read, or it could be a podcast or something. What's something you're taking in these days? Gosh, I'm, I don't know if I'm like you, but I think so. I usually have two or three books by my nightstand. And as I, I turn around and, and look behind me, I've got, you know, several books that I'm, that I'm working on. You know, for me, I'm, I'm forever fascinated. Um, I'm reading, I'm listening to right now on my Audible. I'll just tell you what, what's on my Audible. Cool. Um, I'm, I am currently reading uh, Rebooting AI by Gary Marcus and Ernest Davis, which I would highly recommend. Um, uh, anything to do with consumer psychology, I usually pick up and I read. I'm, I've been going back and reading The War of Art again, as we've already talked about. Um, I'm also have been fascinated by this guy. You may have heard of him too. Also on my Audible, uh, Michael Singer, his latest book, Living Untethered, which is a fascinating book. If you want to more of this idea of metacognition, he goes deep into that and how, you know, observing and letting things, your emotions just simply flow through you, yeah. feel them, but let them pass. Yeah. Uh, Michael Singer is fascinating. So those are just some of the things on my bookshelf right now. Cool. I've read that book by Singer, just transformational for me. One of those, uh, not surprised you would mention it too, but um and then, yeah, War of Art is so transformational. It's just amazing. So, Bob, I want to thank you for being on my show. You're a really good friend of mine, and you've been a great supporter of the things I'm working on. And and I want to support you as much as I can, too, on the things you're working on, which are exciting and, and, and have the power to really change people's lives, help people's lives for the better. So pick up, pick up Bob's book, everybody, and check him out on LinkedIn and online. Um, but just uh, thanks so much for being on today. Absolutely, Steve. Thank you. I appreciate your friendship. I'm excited about what what you're doing with the Mental Health Marketing Conference and now this podcast. Um, I'm just really proud of you and I appreciate your friendship. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good one. Thanks. Talk to you soon.